Welcome to this, the eighth in a rambling series, Talking Terminal. Today, we're going to have a quick canter around the knowns and unknowns and how they have impact on people with terminal illnesses. I'm going to touch a little on some future guessing by pundits around the world and just enjoy a few other observations. So put your feet up, have a good listen and enjoy. I'm going to start by just taking a a, a quick look at the facts and how few we actually have in our grasp uh, around this virus and how that can have such an impact on people with a terminal illness, and particularly those of us who are in treatment in that time. What strikes me particularly is the amount that is not known about the virus. And the reason this matters is because without having some hard facts, it's extremely difficult to predict the impact of actions on the general population in the United Kingdom, the United States, the world in general. And one of the things that seems to be emerging, at least in my poor intellectual understanding, is that a lot of the data will only emerge over time. So a lot of pundits have been making references to trying to rebuild the aeroplane while in flight. It's a slightly worn analogy, but there is a strong sense, in my mind at least, that our ability to be able to make changes to social policy, whether that concerns health policy, the lockdown of people, the release of people from that lockdown, etc. All of those decisions are predicated upon a desire for scientific and hard knowledge, of which there is very little. Take, for example, the issue of, in the United Kingdom, children, particularly primary age children's return to school, uh, proposed by the uh, UK government for June. The fact is that it's not clear from any research whether children are hubs for this virus, although ill-affected themselves, if you pardon the pun by it, uh, whether they can easily transmit it to others and the risks to teachers, the risks to ill parents and the risks to other children uh, are not to be underestimated. The ethical issue that arises from all this is not whether a child is affected by it, but whether the child could then transmit that virus to an adult. It's the same ethical issue around public transport, certainly in the United Kingdom, where uh, people who uh, take no great regard for the rules around physical distancing, called social distancing for reasons I have no idea about in the UK, those people who may ignore the uh, requirements around social distancing will not themselves be affected by their failure, but will have an enormous impact, perhaps a deathly impact on others. A second area where it's proving very difficult to predict the future is the number of people who will have been affected and perhaps have died as a result of acquiring the virus. A really interesting article by Vinay Prasad and Jeffrey Flyer, which appears on the Stat News website called COVID-19, 
a supernova in human history, really presents the problems about predicting at least the death rates uh, with the virus. What they say is there seem to be, I hope I summarise this correctly, four categories of uh, potential death from the virus. And we know very little about most of them. One of them in particular is nearly impossible to predict without longitudinal surveys and studies. So the four points that they make are that some people will die directly from the virus. Certainly in the UK, that number is broadly countable. There have been some problems about the way it's counted, particularly if people die outside of hospital. But the UK government does seem to be catching up on that now. The second group that Prasad and Flyer talk about are those who are affected by an overwhelmed health system, as in northern Italy, New York, for example. And in an overwhelmed health system, people who don't have COVID-19 may well die as a result of their failure to deal with their health problem. The third group that they talk about are people who are affected by the successful social and government media raising the profile of COVID-19 to the point where individuals suffering from serious health problems do not go to hospital to seek treatment. There is growing evidence, certainly in the UK, of a quite substantial cohort of people who would normally have been going to accident and emergency, not because they were drunk and had a minor cut or couldn't find any lavatory paper, but because they had a serious heart or other problem. Linked to that are a group of people who may have had routine examinations that might identify serious underlying illnesses, and many of those have been brought to a halt in the UK, although are starting up again. And the final group is the group of people affected by a major economic downturn, particularly where unemployment and poverty rise. There are notable studies identifying such strong links between people who are poor and people who have severe health problems. And it may take many years for the details of some of those impacts to wash through. So four areas where we don't know enough to be able to even predict, even state now accurately, the death rate from COVID-19. Another area I've been thinking quite a lot about recently has been how we adapt to change. And certainly in the UK, a large majority of people, from my experience, have adapted reasonably well to the changes brought about by the requirement to stay indoors unless you are an essential worker. Most people in the UK do seem broadly to be adhering to the requirements of the governments within the nation even if those messages are from time to time both slightly contradictory and confusing, people make the best of it and get on with it reasonably well. But I am very interested in how, as the lockdown unravels or unlocks, depending on your perspective, how people will adapt to that sort of change. We've seen positive changes, or at least we've seen changes in working practice, people working from home, people using communication tools like Zoom, etc. 
But uh, how will people respond when they're expected to go back to work, and particularly in large cities where public transport is extraordinarily pressed and where there's probably not enough room for everybody to get in at the times that an employer may ask them to do so? What are people's reactions to that going to be like? It's something I've been talking with friends about. One of my close friends, Ken, had a very interesting view based on his reading of some of the psychological impacts that lockdown and its opposite have had. So, Ken, have your views changed in relation to both the political ramifications and people's behaviour as we come out of lockdown? Already a little, I think, because I still feel that the magnitude of what has happened is happening introduces an unpredictability that by um, by definition means that anything we now say is suspect. I also think that uh, seeing Keir Starmer at the dispatch box makes me feel that there is a, a political alternative that I haven't felt for some time. So those two bits remain. But I think from what I now believe about the attractiveness of the lockdown and why, I think there is more comfort for the government as a result, because I don't think the government is quite so likely to be blamed for what's happened, because although this is more I think, subconscious than conscious, I think the country has quite enjoyed this new world that the government has created through lockdown. I think that is, there's more of a margin, I think, for the government than I was thinking the other day. But I do think there is a unpredictability now uh, for uh, going forward. Interesting. And and one of the things around predictability is data. And there's an emerging picture that the data is not particularly well locked down nor fully understood. Right. I wanted to move on briefly to embarrass myself yet again in relation to music and composition. Since my last podcast, I've had a bash at a lot more doodlings through music and have found that with a consistent push and hours of learning, I am improving very, very slightly. The relationship between the amount of time I spend on this and the outcome is a rather depressing one, which I can't bear truthfully to think about. But I thought I'd highlight a couple of examples of getting it a bit better than the previous podcast. So firstly... And proudly, here's a minute or so of some choral music which I have written and orchestrated using software and musical notation tools.
secondly, for those of you with a musical ear, I apologise. For those of you with a musical ear, here is yet another try on a theme that consistently runs throughout my musical mind. It's slightly improved, but I still apologise for it. And finally, I thought I'd mention some other reading material that I have enjoyed. Just for the sake of it, you may just go, he's an idiot, and I won't be offended. The first is a book called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot, by Mark Van Honnecker. And it is a fascinating tour of the pilot's life, the machine, the experience, the encounters the boredom and the risks. Well worth a read, not complicated, reasonably light, and nevertheless absolutely fascinating. The second book I wanted to mention was the Bill Bryson, uh, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, a really interesting tour of our bodies. When I read it, I found there were some aspects of it that literally, I don't mean turned my stomach, but made me feel uncomfortable. It's a bit like fainting with blood. The chapter on the brain just left me feeling squeamish, not because it's bad writing, but because I'm bad at reading. He does have a very interesting chapter on the immune system and points out that our immune systems are constantly bombarded by things that we have never experienced before, things that have only just come into existence, is I think the phrase he uses, like, and this is a quote from him, new flu viruses, which are constantly mutating into new forms. So your immune system has to be able to identify and fight off a more or less infinite number of things. A prescient statement uh, from Bill Bryson, no doubt well informed by medical opinion. Finally, I wanted to mention not a book, but a subscription magazine, Uh, that I read every couple of months when it arrives. It's called The Idler, The Art of Living, and it's a beautiful, well-crafted booklet magazine, and it's all about taking things easy, taking things seriously, and has been extremely welcome long before the lockdowns. Um, The May-June edition has a lovely... Uh, article called Stay in Bed, How to Survive the Virus. Michael Palin tries to take it easy but fails to do so. And Craig Brown on Magic and Mystery, The Beatles, as well as uh, a series of articles on foraging, problem-solving. Virginia Ironside solves our problems, apparently. And marvellously obscure things like an article on maypoles. So a real joy of a subscription to just dip into. If you do the online subscription, you can also do idler courses on all sorts of marvellous things that you'd never think of learning. I'm just doing one on uh, learning London architecture from medieval times onwards. And it's just great fun and just teaches me far more than I'd ever know any other way. Uh, It doesn't take a lot for that to happen, I can tell you. So, thank you very much for listening to this, the eighth in a rambling series. Um, 
do join me for the next one, which will be in about 10 days time. Meantime, enjoy yourself and relax. Relax.